Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Forma on the Circe Institute Podcast Network is brought to you by the Classic Learning Test, a classically based alternative to the SAT and ACT, which is the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred admissions test. Students benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To learn more or to register, head over to cltexam.com. That is cltexam.com. and welcome to the Circe Institute Podcast Network. This is Andrew Kern speaking, and today we have with us a, a wonderful guest named Buck Holler. Buck, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm good because I get to talk with you. <laughs> Buck and I go back. This is Andrew Kern. I don't know if I mentioned that, but Buck and I go back all the way to 2006, 2007, when the uh, Circe apprenticeship was a, a little wild puppy running around the living room and making a mess everywhere it went. And Buck got on board and, and became one of our, our leading lights in the apprenticeship program. Over the next three or four years, we made enormous gains. The puppy grew up into something like an adolescent dog, and, and, and uh, Buck helped to tame it, to train it. And now, Buck actually is the head mentor of an apprenticeship. How's that going, Buck? Do you like doing that? Yeah, it's great. Um... It's a it's a it's a new step, and we're actually I'm having a good time doing it. Good, good. Well, one of the things that that's right at the heart and soul of the apprenticeship, which is at the heart and soul of the Circe Institute, is this notion of teaching mimetically, a kind yeah. of a strange term uh, considered from one angle. But at the heart of teaching mimetically is a very simple, simple concept called a type. And today, that's what we're going to talk about is the type. But before I wanted to introduce you just a little bit more, Buck is the, is the academic dean and Latin teacher at Christ Covenant in, in is it Wintersville, North Carolina? Uh, Winterville. Winterville. So you only well, have to one. Well, if you're a local, you say Winterville. But, uh... Winterville. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
I get that. Okay. And then, and then he also has a wife and three children. Tell us about your family, Buck. Um, my family. Well, my wife and I've been married for about 22 years now. And, uh, the children are growing up. My oldest is 20 and she's getting ready to, she's been studying something called permaculture, which she's been going through and, and getting certified in. And, uh, my middle child, we brought her home this last year to, to homeschool her. I, I do that. I work with her at home. And then our youngest is growing up. She's, uh, she's getting ready to enter into, uh, eighth grade. Hmm. And uh, we live here on a little farm where we raise uh, chickens, turkeys. Uh, I'm getting into bees, so I have a lot of beehives now that I run, um, making honey. And is that and, to attack your neighbors with in case they threaten you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the neighbors are pretty good. So Good. Good. Well, one of the things, Buck, I don't know if I've ever told you this to your face, and since we're on a podcast, I can tell it to you over the air. But one of the things I've always admired about you so much is how extremely skilled you are hands-on. Uh, Buck actually did uh, ride in the rodeo when he was younger. He grew up farming. He is a very skilled farmer. Um, this idea that his daughter is going into permaculture makes total sense to me. And it, uh, the land has always been a big deal to you. And at the same time, how many people have I met in my life that have a good grasp of Hebrew, a decent grasp of Greek and, are, uh, Greek and are almost fluent in Latin. So how do you balance this physical with this, this linguistic or intellectual life? How do you do that? That's, that's great. Um, my, I've always, I, I guess I've always loved studying and well, I shouldn't say always once I got out of high school, um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I traveled around. I, I guess I took a, a long gap year, about four or five years, where I traveled this the rodeo circuit. And uh, I, I had, <laughs> a four or I five a, year gap year, I like that. Yeah, I had a love of horses. My dad taught me that, and um, and I had always been involved with um, horses training professionally, and then also with rodeo. But um, I got back. When I came out of that, I, I went back to school around the age of 22 when I first married, and uh, I fell in love with studying. And during that time, I had a, a professor who um, ignited, I guess, or fanned the flame of, of languages for me. He was a my Hebrew teacher. But uh, being married with children and working full time and trying to make it through school, I, I spent a lot of time being sedentary, right? Sitting down and studying. Um, and for me, uh, I just got to get up and move. And so I always liked working with my hands and, um, I like working outside. I like building things. Um, I worked for a time as a carpenter. I, I went to school for welding. And so I don't know, I just always had a knack and an appreciation for being able to, to do things. And, um, with my hands. And I feel like it's a, uh, it's a good balance. It's uh, sort of the Latin phrases, you know, uh, men sana and corpore sano, right? So a sound mind and a sound body. And so I just feel like the physical activity helped balances the, uh, the mental activity. What about a guy like me who, who, who has neither a sound mind nor a sound body? Well, <laughs> what, what do I do? <laughs> the unfortunate thing is you only have one life. 
So <laughs> it's, it's about over, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you take small steps. Okay. You do something, right? You do yeah. something. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a I'm I'm a little jealous because because one of the things it takes to to live that kind of life is some degree of stability and staying in place. And one of the things that you've done well is is found spots and then stayed there and and improved them. And I think in that sense, you are in an image. You are you are yourself a type of the sort of um, crunchy con, the the person who's morally grounded, who whose life is lived in the intellectual and and moral traditions of the Christian church, but at the same time, um, aren't intimidated by the environmentalists and people like that because that's nothing new. It's it's not like uh, for the first time in history we've decided that determine that the environment matters because you live in it. And I think, I think you're a well-rounded person. And so I just want to express that to our, to our listeners, because what we're going to talk about in this, um, in this podcast, as I mentioned, is the whole idea of types. And mm-hmm. I indicated earlier that we place a, a strong emphasis on what we call mimetic teaching and that in mimetic teaching, the type is a critically important element. So what am I talking about? What's, what's, what's my medic teaching and what's a type? Well, that was one of the things that led me to Circe, honestly, was the question that I had was, was twofold. What is classical education or, you know, classical Christian education? And then the second one was, how do we do it? And I felt like it was, it was easy enough to pick up the literature and get a, a basic grasp of what it was. But the question was how to do it. And so that was why I joined the apprenticeship was to, to learn if I, if I understand what Christian classical education is, then how do I actually teach classically? How do I teach in a way that honors the the way that we learn? And, um, and that was through the apprenticeship. We discovered, um, what I came to discover, what we were taught was the, uh, classical rhetoric through the lost tools of writing and, and that became a medium for mimetic teaching, which <clears throat> mimetic teaching is, is as we, we describe it and define it, is, is a mode of teaching that, um, I don't know, I like to, it's, the word is based on the, the idea of imitation. So the imitation of what? Well, the imitation of truth, ultimately, right? Imitation of the Logos, Christ. Um, we say the imitatio Christi. But, but what does that mean in terms of teaching a lesson, say, in, in, in composition, in Lost Tools of Writing? What does it mean in terms of teaching a lesson on, say, metaphors or on what an amplification is or how to define a term? And so the, the, the idea is, is being able to imitate that. My, and we do that through these different stages. And we move, um, as I like to say, we move from an initial perception, being able to perceive or, or see the idea the, the, the logos of a lesson to imitating it. So we move in this trajectory from perception to imitation. Um, and there's a process that we go through in order to do that. Or you, mean, you mean the student moves that or the teach to who, who, who moves from perception to imitation? Well, <laughs> the student in the classroom is the teacher teaches, but, but I think that the teacher also has to do it as well. Right. Mm. Because the teacher this is where I like to, I, I, I like to refer to something I call breathing because this is what I get in. If you go to Genesis two 
And you look at the event that takes place there, where God takes and forms man out of the, the dust of the earth, and then he breathes into him, into his nostrils, and he becomes a living soul, right? And so in that moment that man breathes, right? Notice that it's God who is exhaling. And God's exhaling the, the, the spirit, the spirit of God is exhaled from God and man inhales. And so there's this process of inhaling and exhaling, right? Breathing. And so one of the things though, I think that is essential for teachers, particularly is the inhaling, right? Teachers have to breathe as well. And if all the teacher is ever doing is exhaling, is just breathing out, is just and never inhaling themselves, then the, the teaching isn't as, how should we say, the teaching isn't as rich as it could be, right? The teacher is, is sort of circuited. So before a teacher can, can lead a student to, to imitate, you know, moving from perception to imitation to, to go through that process mimetically, I believe the, teach, the teacher has to as well, right? The teacher has to also have taken time set aside to be able to breathe, to be able to inhale, to be able to, to contemplate, to, to perceive and contemplate and, and, and come to understand and behold the idea so that they can imitate it. So that the, the act of teaching is itself the teacher imitating the idea. The teacher then is providing a type, right? For the student as well. So that the student now is able to look upon that and see it and, and begin to, to draw from it. Wow. So I got I to gotta pause you for a second. You've given us a, a really great picture, the picture of breathing, in, in, inhaling and exhaling, the need to inhale. And then you've also given us a very abstract way of putting it. You've said, you've talked about an initial perception going on and, and becoming an imitation. And then you said that the teacher has to imitate the idea. Imitating an idea, that's a, that's a really odd thought at first don't we typically don't we imitate like movements or actions so so a person wants to learn how to play basketball and he, he doesn't sit and imitate an idea he imitates a, a move um a person wants to learn how to swim he imitates a stroke he, a person wants to learn how to dance he imitates a, a step. What, what do you mean by imitating an idea? Well, yeah, the, the idea, I guess the, the, to explain that, an idea sits behind everything. So um, as uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to go about this, uh, to look at it. So if you think of maybe some of the things that you mentioned were were skills uh -huh. uh, that and so there is there is that sense in which we there's a skill that we're we're mimicking a, a movement a motion that we 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 copy we imitate but that that movement that action itself is a is a a physical embodiment of some of, of an idea of some kind. So, um, okay. So let's take you back to the rodeo or to your farm. You're, sure. you're, um, you're trying to plant 
you're, you're, you're trying to grow a tree or you're trying, let's go, you're trying to tame a horse. Okay. What, what is the, what would be one action you would do if you're taming a horse? Well, one of the first things is we go to the round pen. Um, and one of the things I began teaching the horse to do is to trust you. So in order to do that, you, you ask the horse to do certain things. So let's say I just start by, by um, having the horse run in certain directions in the round pen, perhaps, or to take a saddle, um, or to, to maybe, how about turn or stop, or any of those kind of actions. Okay, so let's just pick one of those. The, the most intriguing to me is taking a saddle. Okay, so what you're saying is the action embodies the idea, and, and you use the phrase, you're teaching the horse to trust you. Am I, am I hearing you correctly then that, that the act of taking a saddle embodies the idea that the horse should trust you or that you are trustworthy maybe? Yeah, I, I suppose so. Um, I mean, in, in so if we if we stick with the, this example of horses, so in any interaction that you have with a with an animal with a horse, for instance, there has to be a two way. It's a relationship between the animal and you, and the, and both of you have to have trust. And um, in order for you to do things to the horse and ask the horse to do things for you, that you've got to have that trust. And there's, I guess, there's a number of different steps. You know, the horse has got to be willing to, to realize that the saddle's not scary. Um, and they've got to learn to, to qualm the fear that they might have of something new, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, this is uncomfortable to them. They, they, they don't ever, they've never had this experience and they don't so, know how so, to. Sorry to interrupt they, you, but it sounds like you're teaching the horse a lot of ideas. <laughs> also, yeah. this has, there's nothing, there's clearly nothing in, in this that relates to children because Obviously, the relationship element is not important with children. Yeah, right. The idea of trust. I might say that I've been teaching for a long time, but I've only been teaching humans for about 15, 16 years. <laughs> but, but yeah, which, which horses is easier? Are, the horse, the, the round pin, I don't know. The round pin was, was sort of my first classroom. And it, it's, you learn a lot from that, I think, yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to hold, I'm going to freeze you right there. I want to hold that thought. Okay. You, we've been talking about a horse learning from you. Now you said you learned a lot from the round pen. Yeah. Okay. Apparently things that you bring into teaching. Are you saying that when you were teaching horses in the round pen, mm-hmm. were, were you saying, are you saying that there, that you in that experience were learning ideas and that those ideas now are things that you can apply in other contexts besides the round pen? The, sort of this transference of, of under knowledge or understanding that I can take knowledge or skills that I've learned in, in one arena and move them into another arena. Yeah. Um, yeah that's part yeah, of absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, probably. So the thing I think of the most that, that I learned the most is that out of the hundreds of horses that I worked with, no two were alike. Every single horse was different. And but they, what were all I had, horses. they were all horses, but every single one of them had a different composition, disposition. And so one of the things I had to learn was, okay, ultimately I had a goal. 
my, my trainer said, this is what I want. I want X, Y, and Z from these horses. And you need to tell me when they're ready. And so that was, that was the goal. That was the standard, right. That I was having to get the horse to that point, but I, I couldn't do it the same way on every horse. Um, so sometimes, it, you know, so I might try one technique or one way of trying to teach the horse how to do this particular skill, but it might not work on the same way on a different horse. I might have to actually do it, try to go about it in a different way. And so, or it may take me longer. One horse may take less time. And so I had to learn to ad- adapt my own instruction, my own training based on the horse. And so I had to read the horse a lot. And so the thing, the thing about that is, is that what it taught me was that, and this is where I get out of the Phaedrus Plato talks about in the Phaedrus. He says that it's the responsibility of the, the teacher to know the, in, the, the, the soul of the individual person and to fit what the teacher says to the soul of the, the of the one whom he's speaking with. Right. So you have to, it's, it's more than just, it's not just a, a horse. It's not just an animal. It's not just a, a, a child, right. In your class, it's not just a warm body in a seat. They actually have a soul and the responsibility of the teacher is to be able to perceive and understand the nature of that soul and know how to fit the word to the action, right. Hamlet, um, mm-hmm. suit the action to the word and the word to the action and, and overstep, not what the, the overstep, not the, the boundaries of nature. Um, right. Don't teach a horse like it's a dog. Yeah. Don't teach a horse like a dog, but, but understand too, that it, it it's not a, it's not a, it's not a factory, right? It's not uh, you don't just do one, two, three, and everything comes out the same on every single animal, right? On every single horse. You can't, uh, you got to understand it might take you longer. It might take less time. It might take more time to do something to accomplish what you're trying to do. You might have to go about it in a different way. Well, you're, I, I mean, you're making it's this. a basic skill I brought into the classroom. I think, you know, um, yeah, that but I, that's scary, Buck. I, what, what I'm trying to get at here is more of a comic book version of, of how this all works. And you're getting all <laughs> deep and nuanced because, because, because what I'm okay, here, here's what's going through my mind. We're, we're talking about types. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not sure that we've made it obvious that we're talking about types. So let me ask you this. You said what you learned the most is that of the hundreds of horses you taught, they're not all alike. Okay. Right. That's uh, now here's my question. Well, let me put it this way. That, it sounds to me that's an idea. Hundreds of horses are not all alike. Would you agree that that's an idea? Sure. Simply in the, in the most general sense of an idea. Okay. Now you came to understand that idea experientially, right? Correct. In other words, you could have read that in a book, but you wouldn't have known it. Correct. What, what made that real knowledge to you as opposed to an abstract idea that you found on a piece of paper? See, this is Okay. This is something, let me throw this out to you and see what you think though. Um, and, and my immediate response to that is, is that I played with it, right? Is that I spent time in the round pen doing it, playing with it, handling each horse, working with them. And the reason why I say play with it is because, and see if I can draw this connection to types. Um, one of the things that I see a lot, and one of the things I've even, you know, I've done myself in the classroom, it, it being pressured with time, is in terms of teaching, sometimes we talk about types and we might 
understand them or might have heard the term sort of examples. Like give an example. You might think of that in terms of math. Like here's here's one math example. Here's another example. Here's another example. Or here's one horse. Here's a second horse. Here's a third horse, right? So, um, and oftentimes in the teaching of that, we say we give a student a lot of examples. We give a student a lot of types, right? And we still haven't really, I don't know, fully define what we mean by the type yet, but, but we give them all of these, these types, all of these examples. And then we say, okay, now go do it. Or we say, here is, um, what the lesson is. Like the teacher might define it. So, um, in my, I watched a, a lesson recently where, uh, so in, in a, a lesson is being taught where the, the teacher in a math class is talking about uh, the way to solve different kinds of squares. Um, you know, um, there, there, there are, are perfect squares and, and different squares. And so the teacher throws up some problems that, um, that throw, that has some math problems that shows the differences of squares. When you, you solve out these equations like two X plus three, in parentheses next to another set of parentheses of say uh, 2x minus 3 right and so how do you how do you work that problem and then there is another set of problems of perfect squares and so now the teacher gives that and then the teacher says okay so here's the difference the difference between these two examples is you can always do this this one and this with this one or something like that and, and so now here are some other problems and go, and you can go do them or on your homework tonight or work it. But see, the thing about that is, is what I'm getting at is, is that the students, I don't feel like we're ever really allowed to play with those, uh, those types. They were never allowed to sit there and handle them and play with them. In other words, in, in, instead of allowing the student to handle it, to, to throw it around, to look at it, to try to get frustrated by not being able to solve it or being able to solve it, and then being asked, what was different between this one versus this one over here? So what was the difference between this set of squares versus this set of squares? And allow the student to be able to, to, to hand, so like, what's the difference between this particular horse and this particular horse, right? Mm, yeah. And, and how, how can we still achieve the, the goal that we're trying to achieve? And so the student, and so that's what I mean by playing with it. So I think that the answer to the question was what, what helped me, what enabled me to understand was allow, giving me time and space, right? Inside the, the classroom, inside the, the, inside, the, the, inside the, the round pin to actually play with the animal in order to, to figure it out. You know, I guess it might be put it that way. You know, you gotta, you just gotta get out and, and wrestle with it. To get to know it. Get to know it and figure it out. And so, so then, so then the, a horse, a particular horse is an example of a horse, right? And a particular math problem is an example of a math concept. So the idea of a horse and the idea of a math concept to square in that case is embodied in these types. And it sounds to me like you learned two things, at least, I mean, thousands, but two things that, that are interesting for this conversation that strikes me is that one is you learned in a, in a, in a way that I will never understand. You learned what a horse is, not a dictionary definition, but you learned what a horse is because you handled hundreds of horses. I, I see them on TV. That's what a horse is to me. 
And then secondly, not only did you learn what a horse is, what is always true of a horse, but you also learned how very different horses can be. And so you have both a firm understanding of the idea of horse and a very flexible understanding of what's contained in that idea of a horse. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. So yeah, the varieties of, of the various natures of a horse, perhaps. Yeah. And yet, and yet they all have the one shared nature. So within, so, so you could almost say that to define, which means to set a limit, right? To define is to put a word, to put a concept in its corral. And in that corral, you let that word have a lot of movement, but outside that corral, outside that round pen, it's no longer the same thing anymore. So it's not that when you define a word, you've, you've described exactly what something is under every circumstance, but you've, you've identified the limits within which it still is that thing. Mm-hmm. That, that seems significant to me because, because what you said earlier is that there's initial perception, which moves to imitation. And, and we talked about skills. We somewhat, we've talked about ideas. Um, when we talk about types, we're talking about some specific perception, right? That the point of a type is that you perceive it. You've get, you've talked about it as examples. Is there any other kind of type that you can use as a teacher besides examples of something? Any other kind of type that you can use? For, yeah, for, for example, for example, <laughs> get it? For, for yeah. example, okay, you've talked about horses and we, and then I'm taking them as examples of horses. You've talked about how, how, um, you, you, another thing you said you learned was adaptation. Okay. You learned to adapt because you had hundreds of examples of adapting. That's how you get good at adapting. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you also talked about how teaching is like breathing. Now mm-hmm. is, is teaching is breathing an example of teaching or is uh, it, or is it I a don't picture? Know. I don't know if I would say it's an example of teaching. I would say that, it's a print. I, w- I might say it's a principle uh, of teaching. Could it be a picture? Uh, uh, you could say it that way, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean by a picture is it's, it's an, an illu- good, good. Thank you. I mean, a metaphor, an illustration. Yeah. Uh, of teaching. Uh, yeah. Of, of sound teaching perhaps. Yeah. That, that a picture what does sound teaching look like? You might say, well, it looks like, this sure okay okay i guess what i'm what i'm wondering then is is that another kind of type if if on the one hand you have examples of a math problem of a horse that helps you see the idea of a math concept or a horse or horseness is it necessary sometimes for us not to have examples to come to understand something but to have pictures because here's why i'm thinking that you use the word like breathing. I think you did anyway. And, and you and talked about Genesis too. You also said this is mimetic teaching. Mimetic is imitation. Imitation is when something is like something else. I've also heard it described as parabolic teaching. And a parable is when, is when you have a picture of something that represents something that really without the picture, you'd have a hard time understanding. So the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the sower going out to sow it's not that the sower planting seeds is an example necessarily. It might be in some mystical way, but it's not necessarily an example of the word of God being planted, but it's a picture of it. Is that a type? 
Is a picture also a type or does it have to be an example? Well, I, some of it may be the, the word example. I mean, it, it almost sounds as if we're trying, we're, we're distinguishing using example more like a movement or, or some kind of a, a skill, whereas a, a picture might be something that's not necessarily movement. I don't know if I would, if I would de- limit example to something like a movement, I, you know, you might say that if you're talking about, I mean, let's, if we're, since we're using the word picture, let's talk about art and you might say, well, let's look at, um, a, you know, impressionist art. And you might say, well, here are multiple examples, but they're all pictures, right? Um, they're all art pieces. They're not, they're not necessarily, or, or a type of literature or poetry, right? Romantic poetry. And, and we might have a, a, a lot of poems, but we're not. Um, so I don't, I guess it, maybe I'm not, not fully understanding, but I don't know if I would say that a, a type has to be, uh, it's, it's not just a, an, an action. It's not, right. I guess. I think I confused that. This is, this is what I mean. Um, an example would be an instance of an actual thing. If I have, if I'm, if I want to know what horse is, then I need to see a horse and a horse would be an instance. A horse would be an instance of horseness, Mm -hmm. if you like, okay. That it would be an example of in math. If I want to teach my child that three plus two equals five, I'm going to give him an instance of three plus two equals five. Okay, three teddy bears and two teddy bears is five teddy bears. That's an instance of it. That's an example of three plus two equals five. Okay, it's not like three plus two equals five. It is three plus two equals five. But if, on the other hand, I want to teach my child that that he should share, I could give him an example of sharing by sharing. Okay, an instance of it. I could share something, and that would be a good way of teaching my child to share. But I don't like sharing. So I prefer to use fables. So right. I, what, what I could do is give a picture, an illustration of sharing or the story. need for sharing a story, right? Which contained in a story could be an example of the thing I'm trying to, to go to show. But basically a fable, a fairy tale is going to be a picture of something that might be harder to see. Now, that might in fact be confusing because of the fact that a story will often include an example and and thus it undercuts my point. More more to the point, or a better better illustration of the point I'm trying to make might be, again, a parable of our Lord, who, like I said, with the parable of sowing the seeds, he's not giving an example of, of, of teaching the gospel when he says the sower went out to sow. He's giving a picture of it. It's like when you share the gospel, but it's not the same thing. An example is the same thing. An illustration is a different kind of thing, but it's like it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I think so. And if that's the case, what I'm wondering then is, is, does that mean there's two different kinds of types? There's types that are specific examples, and then there's types that are illustrations of something that needs to be learned. So it sounds like a type of an illustration in the in, in the school, you know, maybe like how we teach literature. So, um, I mean, that's where my mind's going is, okay. is is approaching approaching literature, approaching stories, 
And um, so when we may be teaching um, in certain, so these become types, right? The stories that we, you know, what books, what stories are, are your children or my children reading? You know, um, is that, that's what you're, what, what you're saying what, here. Um, yeah. Well, uh, probably what I'm trying to get at is, is, is more comic book than that, more, more caricature than that. Sure. Um, what I'm trying to get at is, is, is if, is something really, really fundamental and basic um, that every time a person learns something, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm asking if you agree with this, every time a person learns something, he learns an idea because he sees the idea embodied in a type. Right. And sometimes that type is an example of the thing he's trying to see or that he comes to see. It's an example. And sometimes it's not an example. Sometimes it's an, it's an illustration. Sometimes it's a parable. So literature then, usually, li- I mean, literature is not true, I mean, right? The, it's, not, it's not meant to be about a real person who actually did something. Um, we don't know that Jesus is telling us about the, an actual prodigal and older brother who went out and did something. We don't know their names, right? It's, it's an illustration of a spiritual truth. Um, Nathan tells David an, a, a parable mm-hmm. about, about the shepherd, right? It, it didn't, so far as we know, that didn't actually happen, but it made a spiritual truth to David. And so sometimes... So how, so how do you... I, I, I can hear, I hear what you're saying, but how do you make the, what's the difference between an illustration and an example? I know you've already stated it. Okay. So like, okay. I'm thinking of the David and the Nathan you know, when, when Nathan goes to, to basically to instruct David, right. To, mm-hmm. to help him see what it is that he's done because what he, a great way to he put knows it. what he's done. He, he knows what he's done, but he hasn't really, he's not really seeing it. Right. And in order to get him to do that, he, by indirection, seek direction out, instead of looking directly at it, he looks at it through the parable and, right. and, and now David's be able, is able to understand. So, so Nathan goes about approaching it in that way. And, and, and I, I, I think you're rightly calling this. So that's an illustration of, of, of this, of this, this idea of injustice, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. that is going to help David see the injustice that he's done um, to make that connection. But how, but now he could give an, ex- so it, so as opposed to that, what would it look like if he gave him an example? What, oh, what he, would be the alternative? Yeah. He could have told him about a King who, who uh, wanted uh, somebody else's wife. So he had, he had that King um, commit adultery with that wife and then kill the wife's husband by sending him into battle. It would have been a direct look. Here's what you did. A direct look, yeah. It's yeah, so, it's, it's direct so versus indirect. So that's kind of the, the that's that's one basic distinction is one being one's far more direct or literal maybe mm-hmm. if if, yeah, if we yeah. could use that term versus one being less direct or not more indirect and in, in maybe analogical. More, um, analogical thank you mm-hmm. yeah what do you mean by that what analogical that's a big word oh. 
Well, I mean that it's an illustration and <laughs> not the actual thing. <laughs> it's see the great, the wonderful thing about this is that this is how we learn, Buck. Okay, we, and I love the way you put what Nathan was trying to do with David. He was trying to help him see it, right? Right. What we're trying to do in math class, we're not just trying to teach the kids a technique. We're trying to help them see when we're teaching literature. We're not just trying to teach them reading techniques. We're trying to help them see, you see? Mm -hmm. and, and in that, we're imitating the scriptural pattern. So here's what I would suggest. I want to teach teachers to help students see, okay? So the idea that I want a teacher to understand is when you teach, you help a child see. Okay. Now, how am I going to show a teacher that? Well, one way would be I could put them, I could put the story of Nathan and David in front of them and say, let's look at this as though Nathan is a teacher. What's Nathan trying to do? What does Nathan do? Well, what Nathan does is he gives him a parable, gets him to look at it, forces him to look at it because it's irresistible compare and draws it by the way from david's own experience his own childhood as a shepherd and so on his own cherishing of a sheep in knowing what a sheep can mean to a person he touches david in the heart and david sees what nathan wants him to see because nathan made it vivid and he made it memorable when we teach math, we should make it vivid and memorable so that they can see it with their souls. When we teach literature, we should help them to see what's there by making it vivid and memorable. And what is it we're making vivid and memorable? This is what it seems to me is a type. Okay. Now, sometimes that type is an example and sometimes that type is an illustration. But the glory of that is that if it's an example and it's vivid and memorable, then they see it and remember it. If it's an illustration, did I just say, if it's the other, then, and we make it vivid and memorable, and, and it's a good illustration, an accurate illustration, then they'll see it. And so what the, go ahead. I was just had a question, but if, so the, I was wondering, it sounds, but you want them to look at that first, right? To, to look it's, at the picture, to look at the thing. Yes. Exactly. It's important to look at the picture. Like Nathan didn't ask David to figure out what it is that he's done. He's, he's sitting there. He wants him to, to, to look at the story first. Yes. You know, and, and, yes. and don't, it's like, you know, I think I've heard you say, you know, low hanging fruit, right? Let's not, we don't need to go deep. That's right. Right now. Right. We need to, to, let's let's look at the surface. Let's look at what's what's in front of us. Let's look yes. at look at look at the type. Yes. Don't try to get behind yes. the type and try yes. to figure it out. Look at the type, not the idea. Thank you. Look at the type, not the idea. Because if you look at the type and you look closely at the type, and then if necessary, you look at another type and you look closely and you compare the types, you will see the idea. And that's yeah, what I was going to go ahead. Yeah, and this is exactly what I was thinking of too, because that, and that's one of the things we've talked about with with teaching children to 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 read and to write is let them ask any question they want of of the story. It doesn't matter what question they ask, right? Of whether somebody should have done something, it's going to take them into the heart of the story, into right. the logos of the story. One of the fears I think that as teachers that we have is that if I let the student play too much with the types, I'll lose control. Like the, the lesson will go all right. They won't get it. We'll miss the point. But 
But if the types are sound, if mm-hmm. the types are truly embodiments of the idea that you're trying to teach, you can let them play with them all day long. You'll never get lost. That's right? absolutely because, right. Because they'll always come back because every single type is going to come back and point to the idea that you're teaching. Yeah. And you've pointed out something else too, that what we're emphasizing here is ideas. We want the student as Nathan wanted David to see the moral of the story, if you like. So we're talking about the idea. I talked about horse, right? You want to see the idea of hoarseness. We've talked about math. You want the child to see the idea of the math. Now what's crucial here is idea is not the same thing as what we normally think of as content. Okay. And what, what gets us stressed out as teachers is when we worry about the amount of content that our children learn. And the irony is that if you teach a child to read a book looking for types, in other words, like you said, you ask what character is there and should he have done it? What did he do? Should he have done it? Or what should he do? Okay. Those kinds of normative questions drive them into the heart of the text and make them remember the content better because it makes the content vivid, which is a way of saying living and memorable. Whereas if you just worry, oh, my child has to learn this content, he has to read so many books and so on and so forth. What's going to happen is he's going to be so concerned about grading, getting grades on about content that he's not going to learn how to see ideas, which means he's not going to have his soul cultivated by the reading. And you, you brought up the word soul earlier. That's why I, th- I mentioned it here. It's so crucial that you have to cultivate the child's soul. And this is how we learn if what we want to learn is truth. In order to learn truth, we need to see the truth embodied. And that's why another term for this, sorry to go on so long, but another term for this is incarnational teaching. And what, mm-hmm. I, would, what I would like to say is that, is that the idea of teaching types is a thoroughly biblical idea because when our Lord Jesus came, not only is he the incarnation of the word, capital I, capital W, And in being the incarnation of the word, he gives us the pattern for every lesson because every lesson then has a word, right? I have a word for you today. Okay. Every lesson has its own word, small w, and the way you get the child to see it is with a small i incarnation of that word. Okay. So Jesus is the form of teaching, which gets me giddy to think about. Not only that, but when our Lord came, there had already been dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of intertwined types. And one of my favorite stories, I've, I've probably told you this, and I'm, I'm going to pause after I say this story so you can talk and I can be quiet where I'm supposed to be. But one of my favorite stories is when I was a kid, I did a WANA and we had tribe times where kids would memorize Bible verses. And this little boy um, had memorized the verse, um, behold the Lamb of God. And he recited it to me. And then I said to him, I think he was seven or eight. And I said to him, why do you think John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God? And I'll never forget this. Do you remember the story, Buck? Mm-hmm. What did he say? Not, no. Okay. So what, what, what the little boy said was, because he thought he was cute. Okay. So, huh. so I'm thinking that's not what John the Baptist's disciples right. thought. Sure. <laughs> but why? right? They didn't, okay, this little boy thought Jesus was cute or that John the Baptist meant Jesus was cute because that was his experience of lambs, that the types of lambs, not examples probably. In other words, he probably didn't go on a farm and see examples of lambs. He probably had stuffed lambs, right? 
he, he had the types of lamb that he had encountered were not um, accurate and led him to conclude that they were cute. Meanwhile, John the Baptist, his had disciples had seen lamb sacrificed morning and evening. Yeah. So when they heard lamb of God, not because, notice this, neither of those people got a lecture. In both cases, the little boy and the disciples of John had seen types. They had seen so many types that they drew the conclusion that was entirely natural from the types that they saw. And that's what I think is a crucial point that, that, this, that we're getting at in this podcast is that the quality of the type, and you can't help but teach with types because that's how humans learn. So maybe if I can draw us back full circle where we yeah, began do. with the do. question that you were asking me about skills, because in this, what you're talking about with our Lord is reminding me of something else I was thinking about in terms of just thinking about types and Jesus. and and one of my favorite texts is the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew. And what's fascinating to me is the way in which it's structured. And after the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, of course, you have all of the teaching, Christ's teaching, right? He's um, in chapter 4, begin, it ends with chapter 4, ends where it's after he, he elects his disciples and he says that he was going around teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner, you know, all diseases and illnesses. And then, so now you have chapters five, six, and seven of Jesus teaching, right? And then what happens in chapter eight? In chapter eight and nine, Jesus then goes out and he begins healing, right? The kingdom of in other, he he's going out and he does. There, there's a number of events, and I was I was wondering as you were you were saying this, and is that not because then what follows on that after Jesus goes through and in multiple accounts heals different people and performs different miracles? In chapter 10, then, he sends his disciples out. And so well, I guess what I'm getting at is, is all of those, those acts, right, that Jesus was doing, that those, those, those are, you know, what was the idea behind all of those? Well, the idea is that this is, he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, right? Yeah, the gospel of the kingdom. Beautiful, beautiful. This is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So that's the idea behind it. And, and the actions, right, are suited to the word. The actions are suited to the idea that, that these are embodiments of the, the truth that, that Christ is proclaiming. And he's presenting them repetitively before right. his disciples in Beautiful. order to imprint upon their to imprint upon their souls how they likewise ought to go out and, and and do as he did, which they he then calls them to do in chapter ten. So there's just this progression that moves from chapter four through chapter ten, where we see the the multiplicity of types uh, that that Christ presents in 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 his teaching of the disciples, right? And reveals to them the kingdom of heaven in word and deed. I love that because, because the burden of it, of course, is that therefore, if I'm going to claim to be a, a preacher of the gospel, then it's simply not enough to preach the gospel in words because, because I will contradict those words in my actions if there isn't a coherence between them. And that's the same. Well, that, that, sorry, go ahead. Well, that, that just brings up another topic, which maybe is a little bit longer, but it's the ethics of rhetoric, right? It's the, it's the, the, the knowledge, when you come to, to behold or perceive an idea, there is a, 
there is a responsibility then that that you have of that of that understanding yeah. and and so once you come to understand truth or justice or love or charity whatever it whatever it is when you come to understand and see it then then there is this almost obligation that we have to preserve it right to honor it and and we honor it by by allowing it to be by we we honor truth when we're truthful we yeah. honor love when we love right and so you can't just say it and not do it right there there's there's no the action is 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 tied by an ethic by a christian ethic to right. To the idea, right? And then, and then, of course, you bring that down to the daily lesson, and the same thing holds true. It's not as important if they go wrong in math as it is in ethics. But if I want to teach my child three plus two equals five, then I have to honor three plus two being five in the lesson. And I have to embody it. I have to take the truth of three plus two is five. And I have to embody that with three teddy bears plus two teddy bears being five teddy bears or three ice cream cones plus two ice cream cones being five ice cream cones or whatever it is. I have to embody it. And the soul responds to that because, as I said, that's how we're created to learn. That is how we learn. And regrettably, Buck, we just ran out of time. <laughs> that's what I thought. Closing comment. You get it. Yeah, sure. I, I'll say that, that um, the mimetic teaching has been revolutionary for me, and it's taken years of, of doing it to, and learning and growing in it and, and seeing the beauty of it. And, um, and it's, I'm glad that we had this talk because the, the, one of the things that, that oftentimes in learning mimetic lessons is this, this process where we, ha where we have the types and we learn, we talk about comparing types. And I've often thought that there, there was sort of this, if there was a step that could be skipped, that was one of them. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. But, but one of the things that I've been realizing of late um, and, and, and thinking about and contemplating a lot, it's like, if there's probably a step that's one of the most crucial steps, that's one of them, right? And it's the step, it's the step that we rob our children of more than anything else by not allowing them to handle these things. And so it, mm. I guess... My closing comment is, is, and, and maybe admonition is, is, is as we, we, we learn to, to use types in our, in our instruction and to find good types, is this the encouragement to let the students handle them, right? And um, because that's, that's really where, where the impression begins to take place, I think, mm -hmm. when, when the students really begin to, to, be able to handle the types metaphorically and literally. So some, sometimes they, they have to handle them. In other words, just think about them themselves instead of being told what right. to think, but they have to observe yes. them. They have to roll them around in their own minds. Fantastic. So we got to end, but Buck, thank you. I hope we get to do this again. And if anybody wants to learn more about types or mimetic teaching, there's a lot of stuff on the Circe website. You might be interested to know that Buck has produced a handbook of types to go with our Lost Tools of Writing. And that might be a very valuable resource for any of you that either want to learn more about types or about the Lost Tools of Writing or that are using the Lost Tools of Writing. Well, I hate to rush off, but I have to. And so I offer you all my best wish, which is may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.